Um, I guess our connection with uh, First Baptist Celtus in Lufkin, Lufkin, Texas, started with Jill Atterbury, our uh, former pastor's wife, and uh, she grew up in that church. Her family, uh, many of her family still go to that church, and uh, so there was just a connection, especially when we lost Jill. Uh, there was just a connection between us and Celtus Baptist Church, and uh, I'm not sure when we started, but at some point we started calling each other sister churches because uh, there's just a kindred spirit among our congregations, uh, I describe to a lot of people, if they want to know what, why it's like, do you know Celtus? We're, we're, we're a lot like that. Um, and uh, just friends, we're friends with the pastors there. We call each other for advice. And uh, these are exciting days for Celtus. There's a lot of neat things happening at Celtus. They're about to enter a building program. But even more exciting than that is they're about to plant a church. They're going to plant a church in Nacogdoches, Texas, partnering with uh, the BMA uh, of Texas. Um, and the man that they've chosen, the young man that they've chosen for that endeavor to be their church planner is Wesley Burke. Uh, Wesley is married to Brittany. Uh, they have four children under five, um, so they're busy. Um they, uh, he was uh, a trampoline manager for a little while in Lufkin while he kind of did an internship at Celtus. Uh, and I, I want to know how that, that conversation went with the kids. Like, Daddy's going to be church planning. It's like, are there trampolines involved? Because I want to, Dad's managing a trampoline park, and so I won't trampoline. No, there's no church, there's no trampolines in church planning. But uh, I want to I talk to him later about how that conversation went. But after he did an intern there at Celtus, he went to Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and was in uh, Nine Marks and, uh, and uh, Mark Dever's uh, internship, pastoral internship program which, for about five months, which is cool. If you go to our bookstores, there's tons of Nine Marks and Mark Dever material in there. It's a, a really cool thing for him to have been able to do that to prepare him uh, for this church planning endeavor. He's currently a student. Uh, in the MDiv program at our BMA seminary in Jacksonville, Texas. Um, and so we're excited to hear uh, from him about uh, what, what God is doing in his heart as he is very, uh, in fact, they're, they're moving currently to Nacogdoches to, to start this church. And we wanna, we're excited to hear uh, more about church planning and specifically what he's going to be doing and uh, that's not that far away from us, folks, so this could be a partnership that we have to help Wesley maybe take some trips there uh, and help their church. And so we're really excited about the possibilities uh, from hearing about this great ministry. I'm going to pray one more time for Wesley before he comes. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we thank you for our friends at, at Celtus and what you're doing there and uh, this church planning endeavor that they are entering into. And God, I pray that you would bless it. I pray that you would bless the man, uh, the church planner, and, and just grow him. Uh, just give him quick uh, inroads into the uh, community that he's moving to. And God, help us as a church to know that how we might uh, serve and support Wesley in this endeavor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, guys. If you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. 
I'm going to try to do a couple of things this morning. I want to encourage you that churches plant churches. So I'm certainly preaching a sermon. But as uh, you know, thanks for the intro, brother. I'm glad to be here. The most important thing you could probably know about me beyond that is that at age nine, God gloriously decided to save me. And uh, he used a, our church had a, a revival where they brought a, a group called the Power Team. Show of hands, does anyone remember the Power Team? Okay, big, strong guys, right? Ripping phone books, breaking things with their heads and stuff. As a nine-year-old boy, I was listening, and they shared the gospel, and then God saved me, and I'm just super thankful. And uh, at 18, I really began to truly follow Jesus. I know that sounds crazy, but some of you may identify with this. From 9 to 18, though I was converted, in many ways I lived like a non-believer. You know, I, I attended church, I had all the right answers to say, tried to be, you know, this moral kind of show at church, but then as I developed friendships in middle school and high school that were unhealthy and sinful, I kind of began to do this double life, right? And it's just miserable. I was extremely convicted of my sin. Well, by the grace of God, at 18, I went to a college that had a college community um, called the Baptist Collegiate Ministry. And there's a ministry there on campus. And those guys challenged me to get serious about following Christ. And so from 18 until now, I'm 27 years old. My wife's 27. Uh, we dated in high school. And then uh, we went to college, different places. And then God kept us together. And, uh, God burdened me to marry her. So we married each other in college. We have four children, as you heard. And by the grace of God, I kind of uh, finished my degree and decided to do ministry about the junior year of college and started pastoring. I turned 21, took my first uh, full-time youth pastor job, and, uh, all, and married my wife all in one weekend. So it was, a, it was a whirlwind. And so we've just been a youth pastor a couple of places. And as you heard, I've been in Washington, D.C., uh, come back now to, to, Cap, uh, to uh, Keltus and going to get to plant a church. Now, I tell you all that, one, I want you to know me. But I really want us to maybe ask this question this, this morning. What is church planting? You know, what is it really? Should the church know instinctively what church planting is? Even a better question, should local churches plant other local churches? I want to tell you the answer is yes. We should know what church planting is. Because church planting is the biblical mission of Jesus and how, how God will get the gospel to the nations you know, that we just sang about. So many times that we heard read in Revelation. Every tribe, nation, and tongue is going to be represented before the throne. Well, how does the gospel get to those places? Through the church. However, here's what's sad. This is not really normal. Um, sadly, we've fallen on times, especially even in Baptist circles, where it's, it's not the norm. The norm now is to have more of a competitive spirit about your church. To say, we're kind of doing our thing, and we're not really working with others, and we certainly, you know, we want to be right here and get, take care of ourselves. And that's just counter to the way that Baptist churches have even been historically. So let me check this out. This is some history, but it's kind of cool. If you look at our country, 1776, right? We just you know, celebrated it. Before that, 1750 to 1950. So 1750, before we're a nation, 1950. If you look at that 200-year period, I'm going to give you some numbers about congregations, churches. So, for instance, in 1750... The United States of America had about 600 congregational churches, zero Lutheran churches, zero Methodist churches, and about 200 Baptist churches, okay? 1750. If you fast forward 100 years to 1850, the congregational churches had gone to 1600. There were now about 64 Lutheran churches, about 1,200 Methodist churches, okay? Zero to 1,200. And Baptist churches went from uh, 200 to 8,600 Baptist churches in 1850. Fast forward again, 
100 more years, to 1950. By 1950, there's 3,200 congregational churches, about 4,714 Lutheran churches, about 5,800 Methodist churches. And in that 200-year time, starting at 200, 8,600, by 1950, there were 77,000 Baptist churches. 77,000. Now, incredible, right? How? Church planting. Churches starting new churches. As our country grew, Baptists looked at their Bibles. They realized that this is what happened from 1800 to 1960, okay? It's estimated that Baptists went from 100,000 members to about 20 million members in our nation. It's likely that, uh, that the church saw 12 to 16 million people come to know Christ and have a relationship with Him. And to date, 7 out of 10 people come to Christ um, are one in churches that are five years old and younger. So it's, that's a statistic today. I'll give you the source on that if you want afterwards. But seven out of ten people who are coming to Christ right now among Baptist churches, it's in churches that are five years old and younger. See, church planting should be at the heart of every growing and thriving church. Every church should think about and look at themselves as, as if they are willing to have a daughter, right? To, to birth a daughter church. For a church to, to live for hundreds of years, and God has given unusually long life to many churches. The church I'm coming out of, my church, Celtis, um, they have over 100 years that they've been there. And for some other reason, they've supported missionaries. They've done things in their, in their line 100, you know, their budget. They've done wonderful things. But in that over 100-year period, there's never been a pastor or a preacher be sent out from the church. There's never been a missionary sent out directly from the church. And so, you know, by the grace of God, I hope to be one of those first people of many, I pray, to do that. But the, but the question we have to you know, answer is, is, should churches plant churches? Explain negatively, I think one should consider church planting for this reason. There's a man, I know, a man named Jim Lay. He said, look at the book of Revelation. You know, the first part of Revelation mentions churches, right? None of those churches are, uh, mentioned are alive today. None of them. Churches are bodies, right, of people. And they do not live forever. They have a lifespan, and they will die. If a church dies and it's never had daughters or granddaughters, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. So my hope for today is to convince you, um, in the same way that we're going to see the Holy Spirit was working in the book of Acts, moving the apostles to go plant churches in Asia, in Asia Minor, I, I want you to understand that we, we are working in the age today of the, of the church, and the Holy Spirit wants to do the same thing. If you're taking notes, he'll do that in three main points we'll see. So the first is this. We, churches plant churches through spirit-filled leadership. Spirit-filled leadership. And then secondly, through a spirit-filled mission. And then finally, spirit-filled opposition. That's lowercase s on purpose if you're taking notes. So let's, let's look at the first point. Churches plant churches and they do so through spirit-filled leadership. If you're there in Acts 13, thank you for holding on. I want to read this to you. If you don't know the book of Acts, you need to read it um, maybe once a year I would just encourage you, try to go to the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is this great story, right? And it's just watching God, the Holy Spirit, work as He built uh, the, the church and then began to spread the gospel to the nations. Well, in Acts 13, we're, at, we're right up to that point. Jerusalem church through persecution has been scattered abroad, right? And, and now some have gone to Antioch um, where Paul, Paul and Barnabas um, have gone and they're basically meeting and teaching and they, they work for about a year and a half, and they establish a church. Well, once that church in Antioch is established, we pick up right here in verse 1 of chapter 13 at a meeting among their leaders. 
So if you're there in Acts 13, one, just say amen. So I know you're there. And you're awake. All right. Verse 1, look with me. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen? So this is a crazy story, right? But I want you to see at the beginning of it, before you get into the, the, the hard, kind of crazy pioneer work of, of you know, frontline ministry in a, in a place where people don't know the Lord, first you get this, this snapshot of leadership of, of a church that desires to, to go to be missional. And churches plant churches through leadership that is biblically qualified. So think about it like this. Everything rises and falls with leadership. So as you mentioned, you may be confused about the trampoline thing. What he's talking about is before I was a pastor, I managed an indoor trampoline park. Anybody ever been to an indoor trampoline park? Seen a few of those? Okay, they're popping up all over the country, right? Well, I helped a guy open one, you know, built it from the ground up. And we went and looked at a bunch of different trampoline parks. And one of the things that um, we went to, we went to to two. One was in Longview in Texas, and then one was over in Tyler, which are, you know, kind of close. They're sister cities in many ways, kind of close to each other. And we went on about the same time of day, and we went in two different parks. And I told all my employees after we opened our park about these two parks. Because what happened is I went to one And when we walked in, no one was there to greet us. It was in disarray. I didn't know I needed to fill out a waiver. Nobody told me what to do. We got over there. It was dingy, dirty, you know. But they had the same stuff. They had awesome, awesome trampolines lining. You know, you kids are getting excited thinking about it. But I mean, just 12,000 square foot of trampolines, you know, on the walls, trampolines everywhere. Cool equipment. But the workers were kind of just, you know, eh, they didn't care. Yeah, go ahead, kid. You can play. You know, letting everybody be unsafe. It was just a mess. So we load up in the car. We're like, man, that was discouraging. Go across town. We go into this next one, and it is exact opposite, man. We walk in the door. Somebody opens it for us. 
They greet us. Hey, how you doing? You doing awesome? Yeah, come on, let's get you. I got a, they got a waiver filled out. It was clean. Every one of the workers was excited. Listen, that first trampoline park, it had maybe 20 guests in it in the hour we were there. The other one, 400 people waiting to get on the trampolines. Now, I bring up that illustration to say, if this is true about the secular world, right, and businesses, and we think about leader, the way we think about leadership, how much more for the spiritual reality of the church? I mean, just consider the men here in this scripture with me. They were prophets and teachers, it says. These were men that were skilled in preaching. They enjoyed teaching the gospel. And they did it in a way that the church could benefit. When the church heard these things, they, could, they, were, they were drawn into the desire to want to study for themselves. Right? Men, leaders who were excited to explain the gospel. They were masters of the scripture. They spoke and the people listened. Right? They were naturally authoritative. These, these, these leaders we see in the church here in Antioch. But you know what else kind of characterizes them that I think is, is a, a huge takeaway for us this morning? Is this, these leaders were extremely diverse. And they actually represented, even prior to going and sharing the gospel with the nations, they represent the nations right there even in their leadership. Did you hear that intro? Look again in those first few verses. It said Barnabas. We know that Barnabas was a native of, the, of a Greek island of Cyprus. It said Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, that meaning there is, is black. So this, this, this man, Simeon, was an African-American man. Or not African-American, sorry. That, that'd be, you know, black people in the United States. This is just African, okay? But this African man, he's a church leader, right? You've got Lucius. says he was a Jew who had taken a, a, he was, he was a Jew who had taken a Greek name showing his diversity as being a Hellenistic Jew, okay? So that's a Greek, you know, Jew. And then you have another leader named Manaean, who's probably, he, I bet he had the coolest testimony, because it says he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And if you study your Bibles, you'll know that's talking about a guy named Herod Antipas. And this guy, was no, uh, he was the ruler of Galilee during Jesus' Christ, Jesus Christ's time on the earth. He was an awful man. It would have been possible that this man, Manaean, witnessed Herod beheading and killing, cutting off the head of John the Baptist. I mean, more than likely, if he's a close friend about that time before the gospel was being spread, before he would have believed, he would have witnessed horrible things. Maybe even Jesus' own uh, you know, coming through Herod's court. So you've got this wonderfully diverse group of leaders. And God has made them have one thing in common. I mean, culturally, they couldn't have been more different, right? I mean, everything was fighting against them coming together. The food they would have eaten would have been different. The, the music and the culture and the arts and all the things that would have, you know, united them to their people. Now, ha, are, are, they're working with men who are totally different than them. And rather than do this, the Holy Spirit has welded them together. And so we see right here God's heart for all peoples, even in the leadership. And then finally, we have Saul. And what is Saul? He's to be named Paul, um, the missionary to the Gentile world. And he comes out of, of just staunch legalism, right? He just comes out of, of Pharisaism and, and, and God saves him, which we read earlier in the book. So these men in leadership, they were before Jesus, violent men, some of them pagan men, before their conversion, we would imagine. But now they're set apart by God to do what? To lead his church. But I think what stands out the most to me of these leaders is the way that Luke describes two of them. So if you're looking, did you look in, uh, in verse uh, 24 of chapter 11? So if you go back, and you look in chapter 11 of your Bible there. 
In verse 24, we get this description about Barnabas. Because remember, the Holy Spirit has moved in the church and set apart Barnabas and Saul to go and plant a church. So we have Barnabas in chapter 11. And it says in verse 24 that he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. This is key to being a leader in the church. In our text, in chapter 13, look in verse 9 again. Verse 9 said that when Saul was, was, was there uh, ministering, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. One key thing to see is that the leaders in this mother church in Antioch, this church that would plant churches, they were full of the Spirit. And what were they devoting themselves to? Right? What was their normal practice 8 to 5? Well, verses 2 and 3 tell us. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Look what they do again. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they're worshiping the Lord. These leaders, right? They're devoted themselves. What are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord in prayer and fasting. Spirit-filled leadership is always pausing the busy body logistics of everyday ministry. Pastors, here at Wyatt, hear me. Good leadership is always stopping the busy body. Got to get that done. I can't get these tasks knocked out. To say what comes first is for us to pray and seek God. You know, I, I, I get really frustrated when I was in youth pastoring. I remember people would come to me as a youth pastor. And they would tell me things like, you know, man, pastor don't do nothing. You know, all they do is just preach. That can't be that hard, right? A lot of the working men in the church would... You know, that we're immature, we wouldn't understand. Um, but, you know, I, I just want to kind of push back and say it's so easy, especially in our context today, to think that a good leader is someone who's making sure, you know, that all these ins and outs are met and we get all the logistics and the admin done. And those things are good. But I'm telling you, a good leader in a church are ones that when they write the first four verses about your ministry as a leader, they say, he prayed, he fasted, he taught. And then he prayed and he fasted and he taught. And that's the faithful example these leaders lead. So church, if you can, if you want to be a good a church who supports its leaders well, see them as men who, when they're praying, when they're spending the large amounts of their hours you know, in the office before God, they are serving you the best. They're serving you the best. So, how does a church with this kind of Christ-exalting leadership plant churches? Well, first, as I, as I told you, it starts... It starts with the leaders. But second, churches plant churches, so not just through spirit-filled leadership, but also through a spirit-filled mission. Spirit-filled mission. Look in verse 2. It said, while they were worshiping the Lord again here and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so look what God says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And so then verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. You should underline that. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, the book of Acts is precious when it's studied in its right context. I mean, really, you could call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because throughout this whole book, God is the one directly linked to be behind all these things these men are doing. I mean, it's the greatest missionary story you can think of, where someone or some people are saved. And God here is this divine author who sends Jesus, who is the example to us of what missions is, right? Well, while they're gathered and their attention was not on themselves, right? I mean, these men are seeking that God. They're wanting to know what is the way forward. They, 
they, they turn and they're, and, they're, and they're focusing and they're listening. Now, I think this is important. Because I think we shy away maybe from this kind of strong wording in Acts. Because I think we're witnessing today in many churches kind of a, a spirit, a spiritism, right? Like a, a, a calling things happening in the middle of church services. You know, saying, attributing it to the Holy Spirit. But really it's nothing more than maybe chaos. I think for many in our camp, as we think about kind of like more charismatic churches, we kind of want to say, oh, we see the error in a lot of those things. And so we get so far away from saying, well, we're not trying, we're not going that way in thinking about our church and our gatherings to the point that we actually end up falling into another error. An error that says we don't need the Spirit. And we would never say that. But I think often we can fall into this trap of, of not realizing that when we gather, guys, when we sing, when you, when you are singing those songs, and, uh, and when this, this brother leading you in, on the guitar is playing and music, and we're, our voices are, are making a melody to God, this is worship. And we're told in Scripture that as we offer praises to God, God is, is pleased. He's pleased with us. And that His Spirit leads us in that. And so I think Spirit-filled leaders are, are always pushing their congregation to see the mission. And here, it's amazing to see what God was doing. I mean, God wants the nations to be saved. I mean, you think, think about what God wants. You know, does God get what He wants? Well, the answer is emphatically yes. I mean, the, the question is not whether or not the church uh, will get the gospel to the nations. It will happen. I mean, God, when He speaks about the universal church... He makes it clear in Scripture and says that the gates of hell, so Satan, will not prevail. All of the things we're going to see in our last point that would try to go against the ministry and the mission of God, those things, they're not going to stop what God wants to do. See, God wants to plant churches here in El Dorado. He wants to see new people come into new places with other people to break bread, to take communion, to baptize new believers, and to sing His praises. He wants that in this city. He wants it in Nacogdoches, Texas. He wants it in, in, in India and in China and in Africa. See, God, God will get what he wants. The question is, is will we be a part of it? Will we join in and be the means that he would have to do it? Well, this church in Antioch, they, in a remarkable way, understood. I mean, so much so that even they were willing to give up two of their best. Do you realize that? I mean, you look at the leaders. I mean, I'm glad to hear those other three brothers as they stayed and pastored and worked hard in Antioch. But, but those three, we don't, we don't learn a full story anymore about Manan and what he did in Antioch. I'm sure he was a faithful elder teaching and preaching there. But we do get to see, as Luke follows Barnabas and Saul, two of the greatest leaders in the church, that's who the Holy Spirit sends out. And the people, the church of Antioch, rallied around it clearly because we see it doesn't take long and after hands are laid on, the leadership gladly says, brothers, go, right? So there's just this willingness to say, we're going to pray, pray, pray for revival. And when the Holy Spirit moves and it happens, even if it comes to the church down the street, we'll rejoice, right? But here, these, these brothers and sisters, God just, just burdens them in Antioch. Um, they, they come around their leadership, and then they go and they obey. Now, here's what's crazy. So as they go, we get to our final point. And so, uh, not capitalized, I believe. Let me see if you, if you did it. Spirit. Yeah, look at that. So, lowercase, all right? Spirit-filled leadership. If a church is going to plant a church, it needs leaders who are, who are led by God's Spirit, qualified men. 
You're going to plant through spirit-filled missions. You're going to see what God's mission is. To what? Well, to go, right? And then finally, it's going to be through spirit-filled opposition. Now, I'm not capitalizing that because we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about what happened in the rest of this story, right? Did you hear it? So look with me in verse 6 and 7 again. So as they have gone out, they're going to do this to start new churches. It says, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they're preaching the gospel. In verse 6 there, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, before we go any further with this story, it's important to note that this church in Antioch was concerned for the world around them, okay? And what do I mean? They wanted to see, as we talked about, men and women come from the enslavement to sin to life in Christ. And every godly leader in Acts, what we see is who preaches a sermon that's recorded in the book, makes the point that we as people are totally depraved, that we're totally wicked, that we're in desperate need of a Savior. Now, I stop to say this because I really want you to ask yourself this morning whether you are with or you're opposed to the gospel going out in power as it does here. Maybe more pointedly is sometimes we don't just, we're not, maybe that's too strong, you know, well, I'm not opposed to the gospel, Wesley. I mean, I want to see people saved. Maybe the question is more, do you believe that it can happen? Do you arrange your entire life? Do you parent your children? Do you, do you lead in your home? Do you think about the nations often together? When you come together and you praise a church in small group or in Sunday school or in times, do you, to collectively, do you hear among the language of your people this idea of believing that there's great darkness and a great need to go out? To believe that it cannot or to have doubt is to actually oppose it. I mean, to not believe that God desires, really desires that all people would come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. I think maybe to to, to not be excited about that is to maybe look inward and ask yourself, do I have the Spirit at all? I mean, you will work in opposition of God's kingdom if you focus on your own kingdom. But instead, in our text this morning, we must see in this final point the power of God. Because it's the power of God going out and running into opposition. So God desires this kind of influential, cultural shaping leader named Sergius Paulus to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if you looked in your Bible there, that's a crazy name. But this church in Antioch, when they went and sent Paul and Barnabas, they had no clue. They had no clue necessarily who would believe, right? But they had faith and they believed that, that as they went, God would do a work, and he did. So he comes to the Lord, but it's not without opposition. I mean, look in verse 8. It talks about, it says, But Elymas, the magician, that was his name, the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn this proconsul away from the, from the faith. So I think it's helpful to know this story. So you have Elymas, or Bar-Jesus. He's this Jewish false teacher. Okay, He's ousted, at our, in our text here today, as someone who taught for selfish gain. Okay, so he had taught, he probably opened the Bible in the Old Testament, and he didn't teach for the glory of God, he taught for his own glory. And so he had worked his way into this, this, this position next to this Roman leader. So Sergius Paulus, he was a Roman leader, he would have been appointed over, over an area, okay, where, where Paul and them are at, this province that they were in. 
And so we learn in the scripture here that he was an intelligent man. So in other words, he's a truth seeker, right? He's, he's wanting to be a good leader, which is good. Elymas was seeking, however, to turn this Roman leader away from the way, away from the gospel. And I don't know if uh, any of you are nerds in here like me, but I'm a bit of a nerd, and I love this, uh, this book called The Lord of the Rings. Has anybody ever read uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? Yes, you my people. How many have seen the movies? Okay, definitely the movies. So there's this scene, if you remember, in Lord of the Rings, in the second one, The Two Towers, where they're going into Rohan, and the king of Rohan, Theoden, he has absolutely been, been basically under this, he's under this great darkness from, uh, from Sauron, right? He's got this, he's just this leader, this king who's been inactive. He, he, he wants to lead his people well, but he's basically allowed this, this man named Wormtongue to come into the king's chambers to be his counsel. And Wormtongue is just this, this wicked, kind of evil that, uh, leader who's, who's whispering in the ears of the king all the time the wrong things, right? To the point to where Theoden is not willing to get his, uh, his warriors and bring all the riders of Rohan together to go and stop this kind of evil invasion that's happening. So he's just fallen on hard times. Well, if you know the story, there's this wizard named Gandalf, right? And at this point, Gandalf is now a white wizard, which means he's basically, uh, in Tolkien's book, he's, Tolkien was a Christian, he basically writes, and oftentimes Gandalf is representative of Jesus. He's like this kind of Jesus character. Well, he shows up in the courts of, of King Theoden. King Theoden is all grumpy and he's sitting. You may have seen the movie. The movie does it really well. And he's just sitting there on his throne. And you just see there's just this evil kind of sinister character whispering in, in, his, in the king's ear over there. And when Gandalf comes in, he's whispering, telling him like, oh, an enemy of the king has come in. An enemy of the king's here. And so Gandalf begins to try to talk and, and reason, right? Kind of like Paul and, and these uh, would be reasoning with Sergius Paulus. He begins to tell the king, King Theoden, what are you doing, king? Like, you're falling down on, on, your, on your duty as king. You're to, you're to be leading your people. And the only way to lead them is to lead them in the light. And you're just hiding in the darkness. Well, Wormtongue just speaks, right? And he, just, he's, he says, you know, no, stay away from the king. You don't, you've just come to harm us. You'll just bring death to our people, right? Well, I think that, that story in Lord of the Rings, I think Tolkien was thinking about Acts 13 here when he wrote it. Because similarly, when Paul and Barnabas go to stand and preach the gospel in boldness, and they're sharing it with this king, uh, or this, this, this leader, Sergius Paulus, who's really interested, wants to know what these guys are about, but he's got this, he's got this kind of, you know, false teacher in his ear, this Simon, Bar, uh, or this Bar Jesus, excuse me, Elymas. And so look in your text at what Paul does. So it says in verse 9 that Saul, who's also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked intently at him, so he looks at this evil man, he says, you son of the devil. Pretty strong language, right? You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Then he calls a curse on the man and, and, the, and the Lord blinds this, this man. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, similarly, if you remember in the Lord of the Rings, that's exactly what happened. I mean, uh, Gandalf, he calls, uh, he calls out at the, at the king Theoden, and he basically just frees him from bondage, and they throw out this evil, this evil, this evil person. And so similarly in our story here, here's what, here's what happens. The heart of this proconsul was to be turned to believe the gospel. Then the government would change. If he would be saved, that he could, you know, possibly establish among the people a, a very, a very, you know, peaceful understanding for Christianity. And so, here, right at the heart of their mission, 
They've got this awesome opportunity to see Jesus transform it. What pops up? Great opposition. But the boldness of Paul is on display here. And as he calls out, I love this. Um, you know, if you're a passive aggressive person, that may make you kind of uncomfortable hearing him talk like that, right? But Paul, just being full of the Spirit, he just calls out what is sin. He says, you're disobeying. You're, why are you making crooked what God is making clear? And so what happens? The Holy Spirit just confirms, and you just get this wonderful sign where this man is, is blinded. And I love verse 12. So look with me in verse 12, because this is where we're going to close. Verse 12 says this. Then the proconsul believed. It says he believed when he saw what had occurred. I mean, of course, right? I mean, you know, here's this, this blindness all of a sudden on this person that he's had beside him teaching him. And he sees blindness. I mean, that would make you at least believe initially, right? But zoom in closer because I want you to get this. It says, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished. Does it say at the miracle that God had done? Or that he was astonished at, at the, the way in which Paul and them presented themselves? No. It says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I think Luke doesn't waste ink in the book of Acts. And even though this great miracle has happened, the most miraculous thing is that the word of the gospel has been shared. The way that the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ came from heaven, humbled himself to the point of taking on human flesh. 100% man, 100% God, lived a life that we couldn't live. As Paul looks at the proconsul, he tells him, you may be a great leader. You may have a reach that reaches all the way to the ends of this very province. But one thing you lack is an ability to reach up into heaven and to stand before a holy God and be in his presence because of your sin. And as the gospel is proclaimed and he's told that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through him, that it's by his death, in his, in his place, in his glorious resurrection, as he sits at the right hand of God, that you, proconsul, can believe and be saved. This is what astonishes the man. And so as churches plant churches, they do it. Yes, through spirit-filled opposition. Sons of devils lie in wait, right? They are everywhere. I mean, Satan has a, a, a grip on the lost. If you don't believe that, just read the book of Ephesians. Don't you know in Ephesians 6 it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? Or in 1 John 4, 4 it says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, the truth is, is there are many adversaries to the gospel. But when churches get excited about planting churches, even through spirit-filled opposition, the gospel does what it does. It brings dead people to life. It brings dead people to life. So Jesus saves through Paul and Barnabas' declaration this pro-council. The enemy opposed it strongly, but it was to no avail. So let's just apply this and then we'll be done. So in our text, the enemy is, is temporarily blinded, right? I mean, we can only hope that this was enough to bring even the wicked bar Jesus to repentance. I mean, hopefully even he realized the error of his way and believed. But more importantly, you see this conversion of Sergius Paulus. It says that he believed, and it was the astonishment of the teaching of the Word of God that had him, that had him believe. It's the proclamation of the gospel in a place where it had not been proclaimed. See, that's the end result. You get to see right here in our text kind of the whole picture of what it means for a church to plant a church. I mean, you have the end goal. 
conversion. You want to see God reach a new people. And then you had the beginning of spirit-filled leaders, right? Men who, who sought God, who heard from the Lord, who prayed, who then said, okay, there's a, the Holy Spirit wants us to do this. And then a spirit-filled mission occurred. And they made a plan to go on a journey, right? And they had, they, they had the certain people, Paul, Barnabas, they went. And then finally, it was through opposition. But at the end of the day, it was all for the glory of God. So my challenge to you is kind of twofold. One, I think if you're not saved here this morning, if you've never experienced uh, what, what we see Sergius Paulus believe here, you know, the, the, the warmth of the gospel, the, the, the fact that he was once dead, even though he had lots. And maybe that's some of us today. And maybe you come from privilege. You know, I mean, I really don't need the gospel because I, I kind of have what I have. And I, I'm good. I, just, I, just, I need this you know, kind of church thing. That's not what being a Christian is about. It's not about a religious kind of experience or, or status. It's about being transformed from the inside out by a God who absolutely loves you and died in your place. Or maybe you have nothing. Like you have, you have nothing, you know, you're, you've, you haven't had much your whole life. You just kind of always, you know, dealt with the hardness and the difficulty of life. And you're just not convinced that, that, that Jesus, you know, has much for you, maybe just more burden. Listen to me, Jesus promises, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so take it upon you, learn from me. So Jesus offers himself freely. If you're here today, you don't know Christ. I want to encourage you to respond. After this, come talk to me. Come talk to one of your pastors. Just have a conversation with how to be saved. Largely, though, I think the second group that needs to hear this and, you know, the invitation I want to give to you is, is look, look around you at the people in this church. And you can do it now if you want. I mean, look at each other. I mean, this group will not be the same. Ten years from now, there will be different people sitting here. Some of you will die. Some of you will, will move off. New people will come. And what will happen is, is that God's always changing his church. But one thing that he does is when he moves people and when he causes change is he's always moving forward with his mission. And churches that get on board with that, that get excited, that begin to be burdened by the way the Spirit's burdened about doing God's work his way, those churches thrive. They do well. You'll have a great future. However, those who join point three and stand in Spirit-filled you know, opposition against what God wants, they look inward rather than outward. You know, they, they, they care more about their own reputation than Jesus's among the nations. If we become a church like that, then I think that God will set his hand against and rather than use you to see glorious things like God reaching in and saving city council members and saving superintendents and, you know, reaching the Sergius policies of our day and all and all the way all the way down in, in society to the lowest beggar, seeing him bring them to Christ. If you stand against that in opposition, you'll miss out on a joyous, wonderful opportunity. And so my challenge to you, church, who are here today and believe is Ask yourself, how am I helping my pastors think about this? How, have I thought about churches playing churches? I think we often support missionaries overseas, and I, I love that. I mean, I've, I've benefited. I've lived overseas for three months in China, and it was off of a church that sent me. We need to think about international missions. But I think what happens is, is sometimes we're good about going and like feeding and, and helping the poor in places, but we're not so much thinking, let's go start a new work somewhere, right? Let's go be the church in a new place. About 50 years ago, this is all Baptist churches did. And uh, I just want to encourage you today is that, you know, today's the day. Today's the day for you guys to be praying about these things as well. Let me pray for us and then we'll close and we'll get out of here.
Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we thank you for this wonderful example in Acts. God, we confess that we are sinners and that we struggle to to even be as bold as Paul would be. But we know that the same Holy Spirit that filled him, that filled Barnabas, that filled those leaders, God, it's here and it fills us today. And Lord, that means that we can go out with as much boldness to proclaim Jesus. I pray for those who are here who don't know Jesus, who have not had a relationship with him, that you would burden them to maybe come and visit, ask someone about what it means to believe. And then the rest, God, I pray for the church here at White, that they would be excited about what they're doing in missions. Thank you for their heart to support missionaries already. God, I pray that you would grow up even among their people, um, more men and women who are serious about making disciples, who want to go out from here and preach the gospel to the nations. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would, you would bless our time as we worship you and that uh, we would do so in spirit and truth. We give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and let's sing?